Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. So the promise, or what we would be shooting for, is can we provide ecstasis, the peak states, without the craving, right, or addiction to state-seeking? Mm -hmm. Can we provide catharsis without the cringe, right, without the sense of this is very new-agey, this is woo-woo-y, this is California, whatever it might be? And can we provide the communitas, right, that deep sense of dropping into something bigger than ourselves together without the cults, without unreliable leaders and followers? And if we can do those three things, then I think the invitation is there for everyone to participate fully. And, and I think, you know, if I held any hope for what we're doing for this harvest in, in particular, but I would say from, from here on out, it would be to help inspire the shift from an audience, people coming to see what they're going to receive into participants that are coming to co-create something deeply magical together. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Jamie Will. He is a researcher, speaker, and author specialized in human potential and peak performances. The co-founder of the Flow Genome Project, an organization focused on training individuals to achieve optimal states of consciousness and performance. Jamie has also worked with organizations such as US Navy, Google, and Red Bull to develop programs. He's the author of the bestsellers Stealing Fire and Recapture the Rapture, and is a co-curator of Harvest Season 7. He dedicated a lot of time and energy to have a meaningful event about radical hope. Hello, Jamie. Hi there, Rose. Nice to be back with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's our second podcast for uh, Harvest series. I'm very happy. Today we'll talk about radical hope, how ancient civilization can inspire us to look for a better future. So we are in the southwestern coast of Turkey and former Anatolia. You co-created this event, the seventh edition, and you really wanted to anchor the event in its fascinating uh, location. Can we start this interview uh, explaining where we are and why it's so inspiring? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing, and this took several visits for me to uh, come to Kaplankaya, and at first you just sort of feel the built environment, the, you know, the beautiful hotel, the Six Senses resort, all of the amenities. And then the more that I learned from Burak, the, fa the founder and, and creator of this project, and Roman, his partner on founding Harvest, the more I just became increasingly amazed by how deep the history and the roots of this place actually are. And so, for, for instance, um, the starting of the opening ceremony, I think maybe last May, um, included Anatolian folk singers around the fire circle. And they were saying, hey, this is an Anatolian tradition. We are going to play this song, and it is in honor of this rising crescent moon that happens to be coming up over the hill as they were performing it. And I think that was one of the first sort of unlocks of like, oh, There, there's something ancient here. And then we had the opportunity to go mountain biking uh, through the countryside and through the olive groves to end up in Miletus and Didima, 
um, with the Colosseum there and also Apollo's temple. And just getting to see that intersection of you know, ancient history and contemporary culture, and then went all the way up to Ephesus, which is, you know, at the time that it was, uh, well, one thing is I didn't even realize in the, in the New Testament, there's all Paul's letters to the Ephesians. And I remember reading that in school, in fact, having to read it in mm. church because I, you know, because I came to America yeah. and I had an English accent. So they're like, they put me up <laughs> in the, in the pulpit to read. And I remember like the first letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, Ephesians are from Ephesus, duh. And Paul was from Tarsus, which is also in Turkey. So you're like the entire, like the entire story of the Greek and the classical world that we tend to think of, not surprisingly, is kind of Greece and Italy, actually massively include this entire Aegean coastline of Anatolia. And to to realize that so many of the milestones and so many of the touch points of the ancient world, um, not sort of just touched here, incidentally, as sort of empires expanded and contracted, but were born here, um, really, I found inspiring. And then I was, we were up at the clubhouse uh, in Kaplankaya, the high, the highest building on the property. And there was a sunset cocktail party. And this was, again, I think this was maybe two years ago. And Roman was just helpfully pointing out landmarks. And he said, he said, look, look at that island, two over, two over, way in the distance. That's Patmos. And Patmos is where famously John, not, not John of the Gospels, but a different John, wrote the book of Revelations. And at the time, we were actually having a conversation here about existential risk, about the state of the world. And, and I thought, my God, how absolutely apropos. You know, you, you can't make this up. And then I went for a mountain bike ride with Burak, and he took me up to the high ridge line behind Kaplankaya, where the windmills are that power this property. And then he said, hey, we're up here. Look north. And there's Samos. And Samos is where Pythagoras was born, where the entire Pythagorean, the pre-Socratic tradition kicked off. And between all those things, I just thought, dear God, you know, mm-hmm. this, this place is so rich and so steeped in history. And we are finding our way as to the, the nature of harvest. What is it about? Is it a wellness conference? Is it a big ideas conference? Is it a gathering of people from all around the world? All of these things. And it sort of felt like, yes, it is absolutely all of those things. It's not that we sort of ought to or should pick a lane. This is the, you know, the simplest, obvious revival of the ancient academy. And most people know that with Plato and Socrates and that era. But the only reason we know about Plato is because Plato wrote and his writings were preserved. And he just, you know, told the story of Socrates. Pythagoras, we get the triangles, we get the mathematics, right? And we get yeah. even maybe the music of the spheres, but, he, but he's, he's more dimly back there in history. But his impact on all of them is profound. And so if you go to Ephesus and you, and you go through the, the villas of the, of the wealthiest patrons in, the, in that city, which was on par with Rome, on par with Alexandria, it was one of the major hubs of Mediterranean civilization, they have these marble basins in, in, in the wealthiest, most powerful people's homes. And they were literally the symposies. Sim, the, you know, the, when you think of symposium, we typically think of like stuffy business conferences. Like I'm going to a medical <laughs> symposium, right? It's not that at all. It's like literally means symposies is to drink together. It's the same root as like potable. And so, and they would have these basins and everyone would bring their own flask of wine and then they'd pour it in there and they would mix it up and then they'd all get absolutely hammered and discuss philosophy, politics, religion, the, the, the issues of the day. And then, then our guide then showed us behind another door and there were all of these 
you know, beautiful mosaics and everything else. And they would have, they would host their own Eleusinian mysteries late night. So you're like, wait, these guys are hanging out. They're getting hammered. They're discussing everything. And then they're going and having, having the after party, <laughs> right? With, with the secret chemicals of Kaikion to then shoot the moon as well as the bathhouses. And the, I mean, the fact that Ephesus, it's the harbor got silted in and, and the city was abandoned because they had these fancy ass bathhouses and they had chopped all the forests down to fuel the, the furnaces for their steam rooms and hammams and bathing. And here at Kaplankia, there's, you know, what, a 90,000 square foot, the, you know, the largest spa in Europe, I think, that Sixth Sense is, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. with beautiful hammams, with all these things. And so just looking around, you're just like, oh my gosh, it's all here. And then the harvest ideas, the speakers, uh, literally the stage is in a grove of olives on the edge of the Aegean. And Academus was the original wealthy landowner that donated the his grove of olives to Plato okay. in Athens. Okay. So that's how it gets Academy, comes from Academus, mm. the guy who bestowed the original grove of olives for Plato to teach in. So, you know, there are just so many of those tendrils, so many of those stories and so many of those resonances that rather than sort of trying to find our way forward, who do we want to be when we grew up? You know, or what's the brand of this place or what is out there in the market? It's just, just it's the sort of socio-psycho archaeology. Just excavate what's here and let's just double down on that. And isn't it, you know, timely and appropriate and, you know, aesthetically pleasing, right? To just say, hey, let's just, let's just reinvigorate. Let's just reactivate the Pythagorean, you know, academy. So, Jamie, how are you going to revive now during this event, the Academy mm -hmm. Symposium? The answers are sort of there in the text. They're there in our history. So the Academy wasn't just intellectual. Uh, there were sort of at least three elements to it, which was there was the symposium, which we just discussed. So that was the kind of the, the battling of ideas, the, the sharing of, of intellectual concepts, rhetoric, logic, you know, those sort of ideas. But there was also the gymnasium, right? The idea, the very much so that... The notion of wrestling, the notion of fitness, the idea that body and mind were connected. They sort of met with that, that Greek classical ideal of what it meant, arete, excellence, right? Included physicality, included wrestling, and included all of the things that, you know, the, you were to think that philosophers might actually be, you know, literally, you know, mixed martial arts mm -hmm. as well as the philosophy. So the idea that body and body supports mind was another enormous element. And obviously some of the, you know, sort of the earliest superstar athletes like in the premier league or like in the American NBA or something hmm. existed then. Okay. Right. And they preened around and they were, they were followed and they had fans and all that. And that's not necessarily what Pythagoras was doing. His, his was more, almost more like a sort of Shaolin temple, right? The idea of like honing and training our physicality sharpens our mind and sharpens our access to the numinous. And then finally the mysterium, uh, and, and there were there were so many mystery schools through ancient Greece, and then you know borrowed and continued through Rome and to this day. But the the Eleusinian mysteries were one of the most well known and longest lived. But there were also there was the Delphic Oracle um, in, in Didyma, next next to Miletus, right? That's where Alexander the Great rode through on his way to conquer the world. And, and the Oracle told him, you, in fact, yes, you will. You will conquer more than anyone ever has before, but you're going to die young, buddy. And off he went <laughs> to, to, to fulfill history. Destiny, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's, uh, it's incredibly inspiring, really, especially when you consider 
the contemporary community of Harvest, which is this wonderfully international gathering, and it sort of spans Eurasia. You know, you have you have Uzbekis and Kazakhstanis, and you have um, Muscovites, and you have Ukrainians, and you have folks from places in Estonia. You have, and you know, even even Asia. You know, J- folks coming from Japan yeah, and other yeah, places. Time, yeah. So you have this kind of wonderful cross pollination at the intersection of Europe and Asia. You know, where obviously Istanbul and the Bosporus, you know, have, have always been that, right? They've always had waves of different cultures washing over them. Then you have the Western European folks, the sort of Lisbon to Spain, Ibiza, Paris, London, and then you have the North American cohorts and even some South Americans. And the idea that everyone is coming largely informed by contemporary mystery practices. And we'll be having a panel discussion about that on the first day of harvest this year, which is which is literally exploring how do these ancient traditions, how have they shown up today? And whether that, you know, one of the most obvious examples is the kind of global Burning Man culture, and which and Burning Man is a very large festival in the deserts of Utah, but there are of Nevada, but there are also regional versions throughout the Mediterranean in Israel and in Australia and all over the place. And that is a distinct undercurrent of who has been having some of these experiences of, you know, the symposium and whether that's TED conferences or other big idea conferences or Davos or whatever it might be, but they they want more and they find it in the rest of their life. And the wellness elements are all obviously essential. And that's like Dr. Mark Hyman and, and Gabor Mate and some of these other speakers that have come and shared their wisdom here at Harvest, but also the Mysterium. And that's the artists and the musicians and the pageantry and, and even the opening ceremonies and all of these elements and the breathwork and all of these components that allow people not just to activate and sort of cogitate and think things, but to actually feel and experience things. And, and then very much also the spa and the hammams and the ocean. So, so it's really bringing those all together in a way that feels, you know, novel but also deeply congruent. And then as you peel back the layers, you realize, oh, wow, this is sort of same as it ever was. This is also just deeply traditional and there's nothing new under the sun. Guiding the seventh season of Harvest into a breathtaking reality was none other than Jamie, who created an unforgettable event in Kaplankaya. Drawing participants from various corners of the world, this gathering was no ordinary occasion. With radical hope as its central theme, Jamie meticulously handpicked speakers, skillfully grounding the event within Anatolia's historic surroundings. But the magic didn't stop there. In collaboration with his wife, Julie, Jamie orchestrated transformative breathing workshops, allowing attendees to be completely open and more aware. The theme of the sixth season was regeneration, and uh, this seventh edition is radical hope. Uh, can you explain the notion of a radical hope? Mm-hmm. Sure. It's actually, it doesn't just mean super duper hope. <laughs> it, it, it's actually an academic concept. Okay. It comes from uh, Jonathan Lear at the University of Chicago. And he was conducting a study on 19th century American Indian reservation life, okay. right? Which was actually, you know, obviously a time of cultural collapse and huge amounts of crisis and despair. And for him, the, the, the description of radical hope is belief in a future that you cannot see from here, but commit to believing in nonetheless. 
And to me, that feels really important because as everybody who is following the news on any channel at any time these days, uh, there are what many scholars are calling a poly crisis. There's not just one thing happening like, hey, geopolitics are getting kind of sketchy. You know, Ukraine, Taiwan, what's next, right? It's not just climate, like, oh gosh, all the modeling is actually worse than we thought. And the, all of those, you know, all of those ice sheets are suddenly getting, you know, erased by the tides and we might have to change all of our models or, hey, wait a second, what about where's all that methane coming from? And it's 80 times worse than CO2 or polar bears sad, you know, or social collapse. And, you know, we know the story, right? Yeah. It's really tricky. And we're, you know, we're privileged to have some of the smartest, most connected people in the world working on this at a policy level, working this at a government and non-governmental levels, all these kinds of things. And, you know, as a, as a group, they're generally not super optimistic. So the people who know the most are the most freaked out. So the question then is, it's not kind or helpful, I don't think, to disillusion people at a rate faster than they can handle. But it is essential just for mature, engaged citizenship. Um, that we do understand the stakes. We do understand the lateness of the hour. We do understand that, you know, the sort of whistling past the graveyard, hopey hope, what some people call hopium, right? <laughs> that it kind of just numbs you and blisses you out. And like, it's all going to work out. It always works out. We always invent our way out of this, right? You mm -hmm. know, those yeah. kinds of things yeah. um, simply aren't fit for purpose. They're not fit for this moment in history, but neither is nihilism and despair. And so one way of, of looking at this is, and this is kind of a Kabbalistic Jewish theological notion, but it's the notion of sort of insolment. How do we grow up, okay. basically? So it implies action, individual well, actions? Yeah, and, and the first level is sort of the pre-tragic, right? Which is, I'm going to grow up to be a millionaire or president. I'm going to marry Prince Charming or Sleeping Beauty. Everything's going to work out, right? And, that, and it's fundamentally kind of an adolescent or, or juvenile take, but there's an awful lot of marketing that promises that. There's an awful lot of pundits on social media and, you know, America's next top shaman. Everybody, you know, everybody is promising. <laughs> if you just do this, take this pill or this course or this program, everything you've ever wanted is going to be yours. And I think that is, you know, massively not, it's not reality-based um, and it's super problematic. But then there's the tragic. So once we move from, I, I believe everything's going to work out for me. And then I run smack dab into the tragic. It's a loss of loved ones. It's a bankruptcy. It's an illness. It's a dislocation. It's I'm now suddenly a refugee and I had a life before. What has happened? And then I go into the pit of despair where I believe nothing's going to work out. And that will actually catch and stop an awful lot of people because there are, there's a lot of tragedy in the world. I mean, the earthquakes here in Turkey, right? No question. Every day, yeah. Right? 150 to 250,000 lives lost, 13 million people homeless overnight, right? That, that is tragic. And then the question is, is the handful of people that have, are able to make the transition to the post-tragic. And the post-tragic is where we get to radical hope. The post-tragic is what Mandela and, and Martin Luther King and Gandhi anchored from, which is we're not sweeping this under the rug, the suffering of our people, the injustice, the imbalances, the, the enormity of the, the, um, the indignities that we face. But we choose to believe in a future we cannot see from here. So it's ultimately, I believe, it's, it's going to work out, even if it doesn't yet for me. And that brings us into an intergenerational perspective, which many, many cultures have always had, right? Yeah. Right. And anyway, it's happening whether you want it or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, most 
societies have always had both explicit ancestor worship, you know, the reverence, the feeding of them, the pouring of wine, the offerings, the reflecting, the praying, the beseeching, right? It's, it's really only in the developed West in the 20th and especially, you know, late, you know, second half of the 20th century into this century where we've become such fragmented, rational, individual consumer identities. So it's almost like we're potted plants. You know, like you might mm-hmm. go to the gardening store yeah. and you see, you see a ficus or whatever it would be, and they're, and they're wrapped in a plastic tub, you know, and their root ball can't reach into the earth. And they have to have artificial nutrients and artificial light and watering by watering can. And that's kind of us these days. <laughs> and that leaves us very, very susceptible right, to getting blown over in the storms, right, by getting sickened <laughs> with, you know, parasites and fungus and bugs. Like, we're not built to live this way. And instead, if we take ourselves out of those plastic wrappers and we put our roots into the earth and we connect to a community of beings. And friend and speaker of Harvest, Louis Schwartzberg, uh, demonstrated in his beautiful documentary, Fantastic Fungi, so a redwood tree that is born albino, meaning it's missing the genes to conduct photosynthesis, actually lives. And it lives because all the other trees in that grove will actually conduct photosynthesis for it and feed it nutrients. And then when, uh, you know, when a pest or a fungus attacks one of the trees in the forest, it sends out the signals and all the others develop antibodies. So they protect each other. And you think, yeah. okay, that's gorgeous, right? And this, this, it's not just a tree, a single individual isolated. It is we take our stand in a stand, right? In connection, in relation. And so just to acknowledge, and in fact, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy in the United States just released a big report. He's written on this in the past as well. But just that the loneliness epidemic, if you are lonely and isolated in your life, it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes every day Really? On health, in, on health you outcomes. You can measure that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're like, okay, so um, a key part of how do we get to radical hope, a key part of how do we balance the overwhelm of the tragic, right, of this polycrisis, of endless doom scrolling, of it doesn't seem like there's any way out, is to connect to each other. And, and connecting, connecting to each other in community is fantastic. And also intergenerationally, right? Because if I'm doing things on behalf of, my children and their children and their children, right? Then you get this beautiful buffering of how do I evaluate how I'm doing? Because if I'm just an isolated individual who's been, you know, and conditioned as a consumer, right? For our entire lives, we've been programmed to believe that every itch, every scratch, every possible dream, you know, or, or inclination deserves and should be met now. I, me, mine, now is how we've been raised instead of sort of us, we forever. And if you think of any diaspora peoples, any people who have been you know, pushed out of their homelands, whether that's the Kurds or it's the Roma or it's the Uyghurs or it's the Tibetans or it's all of the First Nation peoples of North and, North and South America or Africa, you're like, okay, how did they do it? How did they keep some kind of cultural integrity intact through all of those times, because, you know, the, the, the hard challenges is that even the countries that were on the sort of on the pointy end of colonialism, AKA mostly sort of Western Europe and the United States, it's coming around for them too. Right. And how do we maintain optimism across decades and even centuries feels like a really, really essential, um, social sort of technology, 
inoculation against acute instability. Because if we if we lose hope, if we forget, sort of, you know, if we if we take our eyes off the prize, right? If we forget what it's in service of, then um, we're not built for this shit is kind of the sort of simple answer. We're sort of deconditioned zoo animals at this point. We don't have much backbone. We don't have much grit or perseverance. We don't have much versatility. Every, we've offloaded everything to our smart bones that have made us dumb. You know, even the shrinking of our hippocampus because we all rely yeah, on Google yeah, Maps. And my that, kids yeah, yeah. still to this day punch in the digits to navigate our hometown. And I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Right. And those things go away and we have atrophied all of those skills. And you can see that with AI and chat GPT yeah. and, and, you know, on, on the hype side of that commerce, Tristan Harris will be speaking about the, the consequences and the concerns of it. But on the hype side, everybody's like, look, look at all the amazing things it can do and it can save you time and you can write papers and you can do this, that, and the other, and it'll do research for you and it'll plan. It's like, yes, and right. We will be atrophying all of our capacities that seem so gee whiz to have a bot do for us. So long story short is to say that the way, you know, the, that's all the pre-tragic stuff. Everything's going to work out. And it's a sort of techno-utopianism, right? Then you get into the doom scrolling, you get into the poly crisis and people are like, fucking hell, nothing's going to work out. But we can't stop there, right? Because then it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So even if it's slim odds that there are clean, equitable, uh, joyful ways through, we have to at least keep open that sort of 10% possibility of sort of leaving space for grace, right? Leaving space for the emergent, leaving it, leaving space for the better angels of our nature, leaving space for, uh, right? I mean, this, this is, um, you know, this is Winston Churchill in World War II, the sort of never, ever, ever give up. And that is arguably what radical hope is, is the capacity to, again, to um, be ruthlessly realistic about short to medium term realities and possibilities while remaining relentlessly optimistic about long-term possibility. And again, I don't think that any single one of us is capable of managing that, is capable of buffering that. The only way we do it is in connection to who, who came before us, our ancestors, who is coming after us, our descendants, and who is around us, right? Our chosen family or community. Speaking of themes like community, family, and our roots, let's tune into the experience of a harvest attendee. She joined Jamie's workshop in Kaplankaya with the expectation of a passive talk, only to discover that active engagement and discussions about her ancestors awaited her among fellow participants. Yeah, really freaky, all this like whispering in each other's ear and sharing of... Uh family shame trauma uh, it was really interesting actually I loved it uh, I had to write about uh, your mentor and then go in a group of three and uh, behave as if you were your mentor and whisper in somebody's ear while you had Dolby sound so two people whispering in your ears at the same time giving you advice on life as if they were their own mentors it's very good and then yeah bigger group and kind of writing down your biggest uh, the biggest shame in your family yeah pretty punchy And, um, and then people would pick one uh, au hasard and they would read it out as if it was kind of their own, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was good, powerful. I was not ready for that. I, was just, I thought I was just going to a little talk and then suddenly, uh, yeah, it became intense. I had to speak. <laughs> it was good. This kind of unexpected yet enriching interaction 
is precisely what Jamie aimed for. It's a vital element that contributed to the remarkable success of this seventh edition of Harvest. Now, let's delve further into this topic of our ancestors. Which uh, civilizations are we going to be the ancestors of, you hope? Which civilizations will we be the ancestors of? That is fascinating. Oof. I mean, if I could just hope, if I just yeah, get to make I, I one, pick one, make one. I was to ask you, you think, but uh, it's yeah. going to be hard for you to know which uh, civilizations are going to be the ancestors of. So. I mean, I would love, I mean, honestly, I, I do think that if you look at the sort of postmodern complete, delightful, chaotic mashup that is Burning Man culture, um, where, you know, you have 80,000 people at any one time gathering together. You have, you, you know, you sort of, there are times where it looks like fifth century BC, you know, Bedouin Hebrew desert. And you're like, whoa, this looks like ancient. And there's other times it looks alien galactic spaceship and you have the signs and symbols of western consumer culture tweaked subverted played with you know in a sort of in a sort of dadaist sort of punk rock comic style and then you have utterly profound rituals and ceremonies you know and and plenty that don't even look like that my hope would be something along those lines it's it, it's a little bit how you know, Pixar and, and DreamWorks, like the, the Shrek films and, you know, and all of the Pixar films that the, yes, they're still doing kids cartoons, but they're all nodding and winking and they're all sending up the earlier forms. So, you know, like, like where Shrek was like all the fairy tales all together. And then, and, and then you get to tell a new, funny, quirky, subversive story on top of the existing memes of Disney and that kind of thing. I mean, I think that's kind of where we're heading. We're sort of heading to a place where it's a sort of polyglot, multi-ethnic, post-modern mashup of the future rustic. And that would be, to me, pretty fun if we could pull it off. <laughs> Two eminent figures of the Tibetan Buddhism uh, join us, Septon Jinpa and uh, Bob Thurman. You mentioned the Tibetan diaspora. What mm -hmm. can we learn from them and uh, compassion? Yeah, I mean, that's a wonderful question. And that's one that Bob and I have been talking about. So I, I'm, I'm excited to hear what he has to say on stage. For me, and, and, and my wife and I, Julie, uh, spent time in Tibet guiding uh, in the mid-90s, so we, we got to see it at a time when it was, you know, relatively speaking, closer to the 50s and pre-Chinese invasion than it is now, for sure, um, while also seeing all the changes and the impacts of, of that invasion. I think it's a, I mean, it's a dialectic is the simple answer, right? The idea of violent resistance versus nonviolent resistance. Most of the world thinks of the Dalai Lama. They think of the sort of the, the endless, joyful compassion uh, that he represents and embodies so beautifully. Um, and maybe just sort of check that box like, oh, Tibetans are just shiny, happy people and nothing seems to bother them. And that's not true at all. Uh, the Kampas, right, the, the sort of basically they were like the Lakota warriors of the Tibetan plateau. So they were a nomadic tribe, tra raiders and traders, fierce warriors, and they mounted a sustained counterinsurgency against the Chinese invasion. And, and Bob was clarifying that, in fact, Buddhism is not just turn the other cheek until you're ground into the dirt. You are, there, is, there is actually a path for um, active and even violent resistance as needed in order to be able to protect oneself. And those guys got, you know, both, both 
spirited away to Colorado and trained at the 10th Mountain Division by the CIA, and then also left and hung out to dry when uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger did the ping pong diplomacy with China. Okay. And even, even to the point of Kissinger turning over coordinates where all their camps were uh, in Nepal. So that is a lesser known story of the Tibetan diaspora that I think is important just to ground in the history and the, and the nitty gritty reality of it. And in fact, it was one of the largest intelligence coups of the entire Cold War. So with all the spy versus spy stuff that was going on, um, the, uh, the Tibetan compass attacked a Chinese supply chain, found what was called, I think, the pink dossier. They found a, a satchel full of documents. And it was basically just huge amounts of details on how badly, how badly China was doing and how much they were suffering and how, how they had no food and the, all, and, and the sort of unrest in the people. And it was, the, it was one of the largest intelligence coups that the West ever got. And yet, right, the West then absolutely hung them out to dry and, and they were brutally shut down. And even more recently in the last decade, there have been over a hundred, and in, by now, I mean, I haven't checked the, the data lately, but it's probably up to 150 or more um, of nunks, monks and nuns, Tibetans, who have self-immolated, who have set themselves on fire in nonviolent protest as to what is happening to their people. And so I think, it, you know, just to sort of not simply just airbrush it and just say, yay, you know, compassion, nonviolence, Buddha, love, groovy, and he's got it. Right, is to say this is a very thorny, sticky issue. Um, and there are always, there are always, always in any given social justice movement, there are those who advocate the long game, like the Dalai Lama, mm -hmm. turning the other cheek, nonviolence, yeah. and those who say we can't just keep doing that forever. So Martin Luther King, right, with, with his kind of Christian charity, forgiveness, nonviolence, which he, he was inspired by Gandhi's Satyagraha concept. There was Huey Newton and Malcolm X, then the Black Panthers, and just saying enough's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, even back to those 19th century Indians, the Lakota, there was Crazy Horse, the Warrior and Sitting Bull, you know, the chief. And there's, there's always going mm -hmm. to be and should be, I think, that's, that tension between how do we manage the, the forces of change, including injustice and potentially even evil? And do we do it by, uh, by sort of sticking to our highest ideals? Or are there times where um, might cannot make right and you have to meet force with force? And I think that's, that is increasingly true around the world. And so I, I would think that rather than coming up with a simple answer as to how, what lessons can we draw, it's messy, it's complicated, it is tragic, it is confounding, and there are still seeds of hope. There are still you know, moments of inspiration. Jamie, it's the last question. Uh, this year, it's uh, the harvest of the day is if you, there is one thing that gives you hope, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I would say I've, I've kind of set aside running the numbers on human-based solutions. I kind of think our human nature is going to do what human nature is going to do at this point. But I am constantly amazed at nature's regenerative capacity. If we just stop fucking it up, even for a moment, life returns. Beauty comes back. And so... Um, my sense for me at least is I feel a sort of 
visceral or palpable transition from actively seeking solutions and ways through to uh, deep appreciation of every beautiful moment that still is. And there's a bit of sort of like hillbilly wisdom. There's an old, there was a book, but then a Disney film that most people saw called Old Yeller. And it was about this Labrador dog in Texas during the settlement days. And he defends the family. And then he gets bitten by a rabid coyote or a wolf and the dog dies. And it made our kids very sad when we listened to it on books on tape when we were driving. <laughs> what did you make us do? We really like this guy. So yeah, sad story, you know, dog dies. The horses always die and the dogs always die. You know, the kids twigged onto that at some point. But the dad is sitting there with this, you know, broken hearted son. And he's sitting there on the rock, you know, on his rocking chair on the front porch. And he's like, son, near as I can figure, about half this life is good parts and about half this life is bad parts. But if you spend all the good parts worrying about all the bad parts, why, then it's all bad. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, well it. done, Jamie. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much for being uh, here and uh, for um, co-curating this uh, seven seasons of uh, Harvest series. Thank you so much. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Jamie Will's interpretation of what is Harvest, how he curated this event with the ancient academies in mind, not only focusing on the exchange of ideas, but also integrating the body. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvestseries. Until next time. <laughs>